I didn't mean to. Sound familiar? Sometimes the appeal works, doesn't it? Sometimes it turns out there, there were mitigating factors. Uh, so, sometimes it, it, it turns out that our, that our previous good record actually really does help. But, you know, at the end of the day, if our appeal for mercy is granted, whether it's trying to talk the traffic cop out of a ticket or trying to convince your spouse not to be angry at you anymore, at the end of the day, was it really anything more than the whim the, the good graces of our benefactor that gave us that mercy. After all, justice is without pity. And if we were really guilty in the situation, which I assume we were because we were asking for mercy, if we were really guilty, then we deserve what's coming to us. Now, if that's the case in human relationships, if that's the case with human justice, what happens when we come to God? Can there be mercy with God? After all, God is the one who sees everything perfectly. He knows how to take account of all of those mitigating circumstances. He, he knows how to weigh everything just so. Most importantly, he sees right down into us, into our very hearts. And if God is going to be just with any of us, can there be such a thing as mercy with God? This fall, we're considering the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel is the story of the rise and the fall and the return of King David, Israel's greatest king. And in the text that we've come to this morning, we've actually come to the high watermark of King David's reign. We come to an empire that, that our text tells us what was governed with justice and righteousness. But our text also tells us that it is an empire that is characterized by love, by mercy. This empire of David's that we're going to consider this morning is actually a picture of the empire of Jesus Christ. And so as we consider an empire one, I want you to consider what it would be like for you to live inside of God's Empire, because, of course, you do. You, you already do. You can't help but live inside of God's empire. So what will it mean, then, for you to live inside of an empire that is governed by justice and righteousness? And on what basis will you appeal when you need it? For God's mercy. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Samuel chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's found on page 482. Page 482. 2 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to consider three chapters this morning. Chapters 8 through 10. 8 through 10. You'll have been helped uh, if you've been reading these passages all through the week in preparation for this morning. That's why we give you that sermon card so that you're able to come on Sunday morning kind of prepared in advance uh, for, for a sermon. But even if you haven't read them in advance, you're going to be helped by just keeping the passage open uh, in front of you, because I'm going to be referring uh, to these chapters again and again. Now, our passage, once again, as we've seen before in 2 Samuel, is not actually organized chronologically. It is organized theologically. The, the author has, once again, we've seen this before, he's built a sandwich Kind of a theological sandwich, chapter 8 and chapter 10, these stories of battles and war, that's the bread of the sandwich. And then in the middle, chapter 9, 
with the story of this incredible invitation to a meal. That's, that's the meat of the sandwich. And, and when we consider it this way, what, what we see, and here's, here's the outline of the sermon for those of you that are taking notes. What we see is first an empire won just as God promised. An empire won as God promised. That's chapter 8. And, and then second, we see an empire won in justice. An empire won in justice. That's chapter 10. Third, we see an empire that is an empire of love. An empire of love. That's chapter nine. Let's start with the empire one, just as God promised. That's the point of chapter eight. When you look at chapter eight, it's really just a long list of victories with a few extra details scattered in here and there. So so look at chapter eight, verse one, and I'm just going to quickly run through the list. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Methag Amah from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites. Now skip to verse 3. Moreover, David fought Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, when he went to restore his control along the Euphrates River. Now skip down to verse 5. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He, He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Now skip down to verse 9. When two, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with two. Joram brought with him articles of silver and gold and bronze. And then verse uh, Uh, Well, carry on with verse 11. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord, as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued. Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom. All the Edomites became subject to David. What what we have here, and, you know, I I, I skipped over some some details uh, in in part because they're just describing battles. I I skipped over the way that that David treated the Moabites, killing two-thirds of them but letting one-third live. Why did he do that? We have no idea. I don't don't know. But but regardless of of some of the details of of battles, what, what we have here is a summary of the wars of David. Some some actually think that this chapter has been copied directly from a monument. You know, sort of like the World War II monument uh, in in D.C. that that lists the different theaters of war and all the major battles that were fought in those theaters. Kings back in the ancient Near East would set up such monuments, listing all of their victories. Something this chapter was taken straight off one of those monuments. What, what is clear, what is certain, is that the result of all of these wars is that Israel finally had rest on every side. The list actually moves around the compass. It's, it starts in the, in the west with the Philistines subdued. Then to the east with the Moabites subdued. And, and, then, and then it moves up to the north. The Arameans, the Syrians, subdued, actually all the way to the Euphrates River. And then it moves down to the south with the Edomites, subdued. Everywhere they turned, Israel had been faced with hostile powers. But not anymore. They have all been defeated. Israel has rest from war. But it's not just rest from war that's been achieved That, I think, is really the ultimate point of this chapter. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, God had made a covenant with Abraham. And in that covenant, God had promised to give his descendants not just the land of Canaan, but actually all the land from the border of Egypt in the south all the way up to the great river, the Euphrates in the north, from the the great sea, the Mediterranean, 
in the west to the desert in the east. And then God repeated that promise again and again, but finally repeating it to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 11 as they stood on the brink, as they were about to enter into the land. Here, here's what God said to them in Deuteronomy chapter 11. If you carefully observe all these commands I'm giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you. And you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. Every place where you set your foot will be yours. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the Euphrates River to the Western Sea. No man will be able to stand against you. The Lord, your God, as he promised you, will put the terror and fear of you on the whole land wherever you go. It will be Solomon who finally achieves the fullest extent of that promise. But the author of 2 Samuel wants us to be very clear right here that God has begun to keep that promise through David. Just to make sure we, we don't miss the point, twice in our passage, the author makes clear that this is not really David's work. This is not just because David was such an amazing general, such an amazing strategist. Now, this is actually God's doing. Verse 6, and then again in verse 14, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. It was God who had exalted David to the throne. And it was God who was clearly showing that he was on David's side. Accomplishing this victory, giving him victory over all the enemies of Israel. Now, what does that have to do with us? We don't live in Palestine. Most of us are not ethnic Jews. What in the world does that have to do with us? Other than kind of interesting ancient Near Eastern history, if you're into that sort of thing. Well, I think it has everything to do with us. Because our God is this God. And our God is a God who keeps his promises. This is what this chapter is showing us in part. That our God is a God who keeps His promises and his promise for rest for all of his people. His promise of rest for the descendants of Abraham still stands. But when we get to the New Testament, one of the things that we learn, one of the things that we learn from Paul in the book of Romans, uh, we we learn again from Paul in the book of Galatians, is that the people of God, the the descendants, the, the children of Abraham, are not finally those who can claim a physical descent, a a biological descent from Abraham. No, the the children of God, the descendants of Abraham, are those who can claim a spiritual descent from Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is by that faith that we enter into the promised rest of God. As the book of Hebrews puts it so clearly, Now, we, we who have believed, enter that rest. Not not real estate in Palestine, but something far, far better. What what does that rest look like for the people of God today, for for, for Christians? Well, I, I think part of what we need to do is we need to consider the victory that secured our rest. Paul says in the book of Colossians that on the cross, Jesus Christ disarmed the spiritual powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What does that mean? Well, 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 it means that Jesus Christ, through the cross, has secured an empire by, by defeating all of the hostile forces arrayed against us. But our rest is not, as it was here in chapter 8, secure national borders. No, our rest is secure spiritual borders. Not a life of of material ease and and, and physical prosperity like like Israel entered into under David's reign and Solomon's reign. but, But rather a life of deep spiritual satisfaction and deep and lasting spiritual prosperity in Jesus Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, in Christ, we have a king that is better than King David. In Jesus Christ, we have a good shepherd that is better than the good shepherd, David. So we are no longer harassed and harried by our greatest enemies, by guilt, by sin. We are no longer threatened by death, by destruction, by judgment. Christian, Jesus Christ has defeated, has subdued all of your enemies. He put them to death on the cross. And and through that, he has ushered you into rest. Peace. Now, 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 some of you are sitting here saying, yeah, preacher, that all sounds really good. Yeah, preacher, that's that's great. All this spiritual talk of rest, but I don't feel a lot of rest in my life. I, I, I feel actually harassed. I feel harried. What's going on there? How can it be that Jesus Christ has really won rest for us? And yet so often we don't experience it as believers in Jesus Christ. Friends, I think here is where we come to the madness of sin. You understand what sin is, right? Sin is consorting with the enemy. Sin, when we engage in sin, when we give in to the temptation of sin, what are we doing? We are offering comfort, aid. To that which actually is is committed to our destruction. Yes, sin sin offers all sorts of relief. I get that. When when the moment of temptation comes, when we're feeling stressed out by our job, when we're feeling like utter failures with our kids, when 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 we're feeling like like our life is just not going well at all. At that moment, sin comes in and, and sin promises a kind of rest. Sin promises a kind of comfort. It says, if you'll just, if you'll just give in to this lust, if you'll, if you'll indulge this lust, you'll feel better. It, it, it comes to us and, and it says, yeah, that person really hurt you. And if you'll just vent a bit... Or if you'll, go, if you'll start gossiping about them behind their backs, oh, you'll feel better. You, you'll begin to experience a kind of comfort, a, a kind of relief from the distress of living in a fallen world. This is what sin does. It, it, it offers an alternative rest. It, it offers a, a temporary relief. But it is madness to give into it. Because it never lasts, does it? That one drink too many. That that hour spent in front of a computer screen just playing mindless computer games or or viewing pornography. That that, that angry outburst. That Sly and subtle gossip. It it doesn't really help. And in the end, we're left with just that much more guilt. That much more distress. What do we do with that? With, with, with this, this tendency that we all have to, to listen to the lie of our enemy. And to actually consort with it. To actually give in to its deception. Friends, I think, I think this, is, this is one of the reasons why we need the church. This is why we need one another. You, you see, in, in, in chapter 8, rest is found inside the kingdom. Inside the borders of the kingdom. Boy, outside the borders of the kingdom, there is no rest. Now, there, there's, there's just judgment. And it's coming fast and furious. But, but, but inside 
the boundaries of Christ's kingdom, we find other people who are able to remind us, who are able to encourage us, who who are able to admonish us about the lies and the deception of the enemy. Brothers and sisters, here at Henson Baptist Church, understand that, that church membership, being a part of a local church, is not so that you just have the right to have the Lord's Supper. It, it, it's not so that you can be allowed to sing in the choir or serve in children's ministry. Sure, sure all of those things come. But no, the, the purpose of being inside the boundaries of this kingdom is so that we might battle Not with one another, but for one another. That we might battle for each other's rest. That that we might remind each other of this this prize that we've been given. This this hope that we have. This, This truth and reality that is really ours, but that we are so prone to forget. Thankfully, on the day that I forget, you don't. And so you remind me. And on the day you forget, I'm not forgetting. And so I'm able to come alongside you and remind you, brothers and sisters, this is what the church is for. Is this your attitude towards your local church? Maybe you're not normally here. Maybe your local church is somewhere else. That's fine. Think about your local church. Is this your attitude towards your local church? A place in which we gather together to to remind one another of the real rest that we've been given in Jesus Christ, to remind one another of the deceitfulness of sin and to not beat up on each other, but to battle for each other and are hanging on in the security of the forgiveness that Jesus Christ has given us. What would need to change in your life, maybe even this week, for that to be your thinking about this empire that, that Jesus Christ has brought us into. Maybe what needs to change is you actually need to join a local church so that you can take up arms with your brothers and sisters and, and get in the fight with us. Maybe what needs to change is that you stop thinking of it as an event, a place you go on Sundays, but, but, but rather a, a community, a, a kingdom, an, an empire in which you play an incredibly important role. Maybe what needs to change is is you stop thinking of your fellow church members as, as them. But you think of them as us. And, and you and you allow the, the obligations that one soldier has toward another soldier in the same unit fighting the same battle, you allow those obligations to begin to to, to be felt by you and borne by you. Value the church. Prize her peace. Give yourself to one another as we seek together to enter into that rest that Jesus Christ has won for us. Well, not only is the empire one as God promised. Second, the empire is one in justice. Look at, look at the end of chapter 8 there, verse, verse 15. Chapter 8, verse 15. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Chapter 8 concludes with this summary statement of David's righteous and well-ordered rule over his empire. Now, now turn, turn over to chapter 10. Chapter 10 is the other piece of bread in this theological sandwich. It's another chapter that is filled uh, with, with battle. Let me read just the beginning of that chapter. Chapter 10, verse 1. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son, Hanun, succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanun, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanun concerning his father. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite nobles said to Hanun, their lord, do you think David is honoring your father by sending men to you to express sympathy? 
Hasn't David sent them to you to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanun seized David's men, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments in the middle at the buttocks, and sent them away. When David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown, and then come back. When the Ammonites realized that they had become a stench in David's nostrils, they hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth Rehob and Zobah, as well as the king of Makkah with 1,000 men and also 12,000 men from Tob. On hearing this, David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. We'll stop there. While we can't be sure, the events of chapter 10 appear to have taken place sometime in or just around the events of chapter 8, verse 3. Moreover, David fought Hadadezer, son of Rehov, king of Zobah. In other words, if that's the case, in chapter 10, what we're being given are really the detail and the background to an earlier summary statement of one of David's wars. And the details are important because the details are evidence that David was not a bloodthirsty expansionist Near Eastern tyrant, righteous at home but cruel abroad. No, the details show us that David's conquests, just as much as his domestic reign, were righteous. Righteous because they were acts of judgment on behalf of God himself. Each of the nations that David defeated back in chapter 8 stood under the prior sentence of judgment by God. Philistia had brought judgment on itself by trying to, to deny Israel possession of the land. Moab was descended from Lot. Lot who wanted the best land for himself. More to the point, Moab had denied Israel safe passage on their way from Egypt to the promised land and then had seduced them into idolatry. And that earned God's judgment. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, this prophecy is given. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheth. That began to be fulfilled in David. Edom, who we also saw in the south, defeated Edom. Well, these were the descendants of Esau. Who, Esau, who, who despised his birthright as, a, as the grandson of Abraham. And his descendants, like Moab, would later deny Israel safe and easy passage on the way to the promised land. The, the Amalekites who were mentioned, Israel was to be perpetually at war with the Amalekites because on their journey from Egypt to the promised land, the Amalekites continued to raid Israel, cutting off all of those who lagged behind. Do you know who lags behind? The women and the children lag behind. And so God declared perpetual war against the Amalekites. So throughout chapter 8, what we see is that through David, God is working out in history his promise to Abraham. Those who bless you, I will bless. But those who curse you, I will curse. Now, the justice of that curse is given to us in the details of chapter 10 in David's war with the Ammonites. As those opening verses told us, David had already entered into a covenant with the Ammonites, who, by the way, were also descendants of Lot. Now, the account opens with David trying to, to show kindness to this new king, because the old king, his father, who's now dead, had shown kindness to David. In fact, it appears that there was already a covenantal relationship between the Ammonites and David. The kindness of David was treated first with suspicion. They're just coming here to spy us out. And then contempt. We treated the emissaries. Finally, David's kindness is, is spurned. Really, 
not, not just spurned, repudiated. And this young king basically declares war on David. David's emissaries, who were sent as emissaries of love, were deliberately humiliated. They were treated in a manner that was calculated to show in the ancient Near Eastern context the maximum amount of shame. How, how did they do that? Well, they, they shaved off half of the men's beards and they cut off their garments at the hips, at the buttocks, so that they were naked. In other words, now, you know, I'm, you guys have noticed I'm growing a beard. That's because I'm a Red Sox fan. This, this, is, this is part of, you know, this is just for the, for the playoffs. I'll, I'll, I'll probably shave it if the Red Sox lose or win the World Series. I'm rooting for the latter. That's, that's not what's going on here. Right? In, the, in the ancient Near East, all men wore beards. All men wore beards. Not, not the Egyptians, but everybody else. They all wore beards. To shave off half of their beards and to expose their rear ends was, a, was essentially saying, these men, they're not really men, they're women. They're women. They've got no beard. And they're exposed. It was, it was an act of, of sexual humiliation. And in sending them back, the Ammonites knew full well what they were doing. The message was, David, this is the contempt that we hold you in. You're nothing but a woman. Now, David wasn't looking for a fight. But having been provoked to his face, he didn't avoid it. And as the rest of the chapter plays out, David first defeats the allies of the Ammonites, the Arameans who they hired. We see there in verse 19, when all the kings who were vassals of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. So the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites anymore. And then as chapter 11 opens and chapter 12 closes, David defeats the Ammonites themselves. Friends, what we have here in this, this strange interaction between the Ammonites and David, what we have here is a picture of how we have treated the true king and what we deserve for it. You know, as I said at the outset, at the outset David gives us a picture of Jesus Christ, the true king. Our part in this story is with the young upstart king, Hanun. Full of ourselves. Suspicious and resentful of Christ's claim of lordship over us. Again and again, friends, King Jesus has shown his kindness towards us. As, as the scriptures point out, every good thing we have, we have from, from this king, from, from King Jesus. It all comes from above. God makes his son his son. To shine, his reign to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. But, but, but then he's done even more than that. He's done more than just sort of give us common expressions of his love. The king has sent his emissaries, his messengers of love to us. Over the centuries, he sent the prophets to declare God's word. He sent the apostles. He gave us his word. Ultimately, God sent his son. His ultimate message of love. And how have we responded to his message? By suppressing the truth that we see in nature all around us? By ignoring or mocking or mistrusting God's messengers? By rejecting God's word ultimately? By treating Jesus Christ with shame and contempt, nailing him to the cross. Now you say, preacher, I wasn't there. And I say to you, it doesn't matter. Because had you been there, that's exactly what you would have done. And your whole life has been testimony to that truth. We are no different. This has been the universal response of the world to God's 
message of love from the very beginning with Adam and Eve's rejection of God and his word and his love for a lie to your rejection of it today. And the response of King Jesus, friends, is no different than the response of King David's. In the face of our unprovoked and our unjustified rejection of the true king, we have earned his wrath, we have earned his judgment, and we, like the Arameans and the Ammonites, will find that there is no place to stand, no, no neutral place to go. There is no basis in our lives, there, there is no condition in this world that we can use to cry for mercy. On the day of his return, Jesus will judge the world just as he said he would. And it will be the just judgment of God. John chapter 5, verse 28. Jesus says, do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice referring to himself and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself. But him who sent me. Friends, on that day, every tongue, every every excuse, every plea for mercy will be silenced. Every mouth will be stopped. There will be no ally to help. There will be no mitigating circumstances to plead. There will be no opportunity. For a second chance. Friend, you'll never understand Christianity until you understand this. Jesus is king. It's not that he's going to be king. It's not that he can be your king if you want him to be. Jesus is king. His resurrection declares it. And whether we like it or not, we live in his empire. There is no opting out of it. And not only are we going to be accountable to him, the truth of the matter is we stand condemned already. We we are not, as human beings, basically good. No, as human beings, we are basically rebels. A stench in God's nostrils. I mean, if you're here this morning and you're you're not a believer, I I just want to plead with you. How often has God been kind to you already? Oh, sure, your life has not gone the way you wanted it. I I understand. There have been all sorts of troubles and trials and sorrows in your life. But have there not also been countless goods, countless mercies? And you deserve none of them. How much longer will God's kindness be extended to you? I think perhaps one of the worst mistakes we can make in this life is the mistake that, that young Hanun made. And that is to underestimate the kind of king that we are dealing with here. He may be slow to anger. But friend, when his wrath is aroused, there is no place to hide. No ally strong enough to protect you. And that leads us really, I think, to the main point that the author of 2 Samuel wants us to to get from chapters 8 to 10. Because if the empire is given just as God promised, and if it is established in perfect justice, then frankly, what hope do any of us have to find rest inside that kingdom rather than judgment outside of it? On what basis do any of us rebels Get to plead mercy. And the answer is love. Not your love. God's love. This empire is an empire of love. Look at chapter 9. Look at chapter 9. I'm going to read all of it. It's not very long. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant? He replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. 
Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. I think this is perhaps one of the most emotionally moving chapters in, in all of the Old Testament. From the world's perspective, what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 9 is against all expectation. Mephibosheth, you understand, is the last living heir of Saul. He's the son of Jonathan. And so Mephibosheth is literally the only person alive on the planet who has any hope of making a counterclaim to the throne of Israel against David. He's, he's literally David's last internal enemy. Now, David knew all this. And, and in, the, in the ancient Near East, when there was a transition from, from one house to another, from one royal line to another royal line, basically, as soon as the new king was strong enough, he, he, would, he would round up all the rival claimants to the throne and he would summarily execute them. And he wouldn't just execute them. He'd execute their sons. And not just them. He'd ex execute their grandsons if he could find them. And if there were any great-grandsons, he would execute them too. He would make sure that there was no male relative left. Because if there's no rival left, then there's no one for the discontented to rally around. And threaten his rule. Now, no doubt, this is what both Ziba and Mephibosheth expect. Perhaps that's why Ziba goes out of his way to highlight Mephibosheth's disabilities. Basically saying to David, yeah, there's one left, but you don't need to worry about him. I mean, he's crippled in both feet. He poses no threat whatsoever. You got nothing to fear from a lame, broken man. Undoubtedly, this is why Mephibosheth has, has been in a sort of internal exile. He's living across the Jordan in the Transjordan, living off the kindness of others, trying to keep his head low so as to keep it on. David knows this too. That's why the very first thing he says to him there in verse seven is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. What? Don't be afraid. I have every reason to be afraid, David. David says, don't be afraid. I haven't called you here to execute you. I've called you here to bless you. In an instant, David makes Mephibosheth a fabulously wealthy man, giving him all of his grandfather's lands, which would have been extensive as former king. But of course, he can't work the land, and he's only got one son. So then David gives him all of Saul's former servants, Ziba and his whole family, and it's a big family, and they've got a lot of servants. And what are they going to do? They're going to work the land for him. And then finally, David gives Mephibosheth back the one thing that only David could give back. The thing that Mephibosheth lost when Saul and Jonathan were killed and David ascended to, ascended to the throne. He gave back to Mephibosheth the right to eat at the king's table. You see, that, that was his right, because he was Saul's 
grandson. So when Saul was king, he could eat at the king's table. He lost that. And David now gives it back to him. This doesn't just mean like a fancy meal. That's not really what this is about. It meant friendship and peace with the king. It meant now being considered as if he were one of the king's own natural sons. It's a picture of adoption. What accounts for this incredible act of mercy? This is the grandson of Saul. Saul was the man who tried to kill David. Saul was the man who opposed David at every turn. Saul was the king who was not a king after God's own heart, but rather a king like the nations. The heir of Saul does not deserve mercy. The heir of Saul deserves to be cut off. But David doesn't do it. And he tells us why there in verse 1. For the sake of Jonathan. Back in 1 Samuel 20, we read of how Jonathan, the heir of Saul, had repudiated his claim to the throne. And he had instead sworn his allegiance to David. They, they, they weren't just best friends. They had entered into a covenant. And in return for Jonathan's covenant loyalty to David, Jonathan had asked just one thing from David. And that was that David show kindness to his family. In faithfulness to that covenant and for no other reason David extended kindness hesed mercy to Jonathan's son friends this is exactly what Christ has done for us we are all the natural born heirs of Adam who was the first rival claimant to Christ's throne and so as heirs of that man, we deserve the death that he earned for us. But God has entered into a covenant with his son, Jesus Christ, who is both the son of David and the son of God. Because Jesus was obedient to the father, even to death on the cross and on that cross, suffering God's righteous judgment for our sin, because of that, God has promised to give Jesus, the Son, the kingdom. He's promised to give him the kingdom. But then, but then, friends, he's done more than that. Out of love for the Son, he has also promised to show kindness, hesed, mercy, to all whom the Son loves. Who does the Son love? The Son loves all who turn from the rebellion, who turn from their false claim to his throne and crown and instead submit themselves to him, trusting in his death for them and pledging their lives in obedience to follow him. For those, for those, the king not only says, don't be afraid. You're not going to suffer judgment. The son's already taken it for you. Oh, no, but then he goes on and he says, and not only that, you're an heir of the kingdom. I'm giving your inheritance back to you. And then he goes on and beyond that, he says, most incredibly, come, eat at my table. Eat at my table as if you were a natural born son of the most high God. Friends, this is the basis for our plea for mercy. Not our obedience, but Christ's. Not our merit, but his. This is the means by which we receive mercy, the covenant of grace held out to us in the gospel. We don't hope for God's whim. We don't hope that someday when we stand before him, he'll like, I don't know, for some reason, just feel kindly towards us. No, we count on God's promise to his son. That for the sake of his son, he will love all of those who are included in the son. Friend, today, if you do not know Jesus Christ, let me urge you, let me plead with you, turn. Put your faith in Christ. Leave your fear behind. And know what it means to be the adopted child of God. T. 
to you who are here that are Christians. You have been invited to sit at the king's table. Do you understand what that means? You haven't been invited because you've got anything to offer. Put aside all of your unworthy thoughts that you must do something for God in order to earn his love. You are as spiritually able to do that as Mephibosheth, with his two crippled feet, was able to farm his own land. The heavenly riches that are yours today are yours because they've been provided by someone else. Do not despise them for that reason. Rather rejoice, rejoice, Christian. Rejoice in the mercy that has made you a friend of the King. This is what we're going to celebrate here as we conclude our service this morning. We are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to gather around and eat at the King's table. Not as servants, not as guests even, but as children. Children of the family, children who have a right to sit at that table. Our plea for mercy has been answered. Not with the voice of judgment, not not with, with the ambivalence of parole, but with the voice of love. And Christian, as we come to this table today, as we feast on this bread and this cup, look forward. Look forward to the day when the king's table will be yours, not in mere tokens and symbols, but as it really is, a feast of love that will know no end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we stand here before you, Help us to see ourselves aright. Help us to to recognize the judgment that we deserve. Help us to recognize our own inability. And give us the gift to trust you. To put our faith in Christ's ability. To put our faith in Christ's love for us at the cross. And in this, in this meal. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.